0: Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I am Steven, your host. This episode is probably gonna be your feel-good story of the week. It features the Randolph family. They are a family of physicians that currently practice in Virginia. One of the highlights of this episode, when I record, I record using a video, I was able to see Dr. Randolph Sr. And as he kind of beamed with pride and joy as he looked on at his son and daughter, tell their stories, and share how they followed his footsteps into medicine. A lot of gems in this episode, um, just a very inspirational family. That's the point of this podcast, to share these stories that need to be told to inspire other people. you also learn a little bit about the field of ophthalmology and radiation oncology. This episode is being released in April of 2022. This is the week of the Student National Medical Association's annual medical education conference. So if you're in Orlando, please find me. I'll have a very special gift uh, for the listeners of this program. After a couple of words from our sponsors, we will jump right into today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is sponsored by PicMonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories. Featuring over 35,000 high-yield facts and graphics, PicMonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. PicMonic has resources for pre-med and medical students, as well as other healthcare professions. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With Picmonic, you can study less, but remember more. Hello, I'm Steven, host of the Black Doctors Podcast, here to talk about Clove. Clove is a sneaker specifically designed to meet the needs of healthcare professionals. I have a pair and I love how comfortable these shoes are, especially since I'm on my feet all day as an anesthesiologist. These shoes are perfect for the operating room because they are extra grippy and super easy to wipe clean at the end of the day. Purchase any pair of clove, shoes, and compression socks at checkout. Use the code BDPXCLOVE to get your socks for free. A $22 discount just by listening to the show. The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host. I'm so excited to be joined. This is definitely a first for the podcast, a family of physicians. I'm joined by the Randolph family. Dr. David Randolph Sr. and uh, David Randolph II are radiation oncologists practicing in Richmond, Virginia, along with uh, Jessica Randolph, who is a and ophthalmologists practicing in Richmond, Virginia, as well. Um, They were recently featured in an article as How We Cross Paths, and they're here to share their inspiring story, what it's like to raise a family of physicians, what it's like to grow up in a physician household and become a doctor as well. So, Randolph family, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks
1: for having us.
0: Dr. Randolph Sr., I guess we'll, we'll start with you. What Can you uh, kind of share your story and your pathway
2: to becoming a physician? Uh, sure, I grew up uh, one of 13 children out in the rural part of uh, Southwestern Virginia. I mean, we could look down the road either direction and uh, you couldn't see a neighbor. You just saw fields and smoke from people's chimneys who lived back over in the woods. And uh, when I was a kid, I was very sickly. I had uh, bad asthma. I've got uh, bilateral hip dysplasia. So I had bad posture and uh, was pigeon toed. And uh, I was just very sickly kid. And I uh, I wanted to do something uh, and I suffered immensely. And I wanted to do something that would help other kids who were in my situation. So early on, I wanted I knew I wanted to become a physician and I thought I wanted to become a physician, a pediatrician. Uh, So, I ended up going actually to VCU undergrad, and then I went to Eastern Virginia Medical School. And uh, while I was there, I thought I wanted to go into pediatrics and then switched into family practice. I ended up doing a residency in family practice. And then while I was in family practice, I met a radiation oncologist. And uh, he kind of uh, just following him around and seeing how he handled his family. He was a good father. He, uh, he did homework with his, uh, children. He had their he had his ki- he had his son's artwork on his office wall. And, uh, it was just a great example of, of how to be a father and how to be a physician. And I ended up following his footsteps. So after I finished my family practice residency, I did a second residency in radiation oncology. And, uh, While I still have the mic, I'll give a shout out to my wife, who uh, also is a she's a dentist and uh, she helped me raise these wonderful kids. And where did you do all these uh, residency programs? So I did my uh, my family practice residency in a little town called Lynchburg, Virginia, which was actually about 60 miles from where I grew up uh, because I thought I wanted to practice in that area. And uh, and that was through the University of Virginia. And then I uh, came back to Richmond to uh, MCV, uh, VCU Medical Center, and did radiation oncology.
0: Fantastic story. And definitely shout out to the other Dr. Randolph, uh, Mm -hmm. Mrs. Randolph. And uh, no easy feat, I'm sure, raising a family such as yours. So, Dr. Randolph, as you were practicing in uh, radiation oncology, eventually you had children. At what point in your career did you kind of set up that family and, kind of really get into your career as a radiation oncologist?
2: So uh, my uh, daughter was born two weeks before I graduated medical school. And my son was born, or my oldest son was born, uh, what, my first year, uh, second year of family practice residency.
0: And when they were born, you looked at them and and said, uh, one's going to be a radiation oncologist and one's going to be an ophthalmologist?
2: It's... it's... (laughs) No, no. My daughter actually was supposed to be the radiation oncologist, but she switched on me. Uh, but uh, it, it was funny when David uh, when I was when I was uh, in medical school in the first part of my uh, family practice uh, residency. Jessica, you don't know this, but I used to sign all my books, uh, David M. Randolph, MD, JD, and the JD meant Jessica's dad. And then when David came along, I thought he might become a doctor early on. So I used to write in my books, David M. Randolph, senior M.D., so that they would know the difference later on that it was my textbook as opposed to his. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I know. I know I've never told you guys this story before, but I'll show you the books. You can see all my old family practice Yeah, yeah. Pull those those books out.
0: Um, I don't think we use books anymore in medical school, but... I know, right? (laughs) Yeah so i guess we have to go in birth order uh so jessica dr randolph the ophthalmologist can you talk about what it was like to to grow up in a um family that was you know i'm sure super super busy between dentistry and and medicine um at what point did you decide that medicine was the career you wanted to go into
1: uh i think probably pretty early on and my dad can co-sign that um you know, I think everyone goes through the marine biology phase and I wanted to be an Egyptologist for a long time, but I think medicine was sort of inevitable in a lot of ways. It really aligns with a lot of my core values and things that I'm interested in and passionate about. And growing up with medical parents is, uh, is really fun. We used to go in Roanoke after school and hang out in my dad's office and have graham crackers and the little ginger ales. <laughs> <And laughs> it was so much fun. And we could, you know, walk around and meet the patients. And it was, you know, a really open environment for us to sort of kind of experience things. You know, at that point, we were so young that I don't think I really appreciated a lot of what I was seeing and witnessing. Um, but it was really cool. And it was a, a good experience that made me. Kind of solidify my decision to go into medicine. And, you know, I think we were all busy. You know, you said something about us being busy. Like my brother played a sport, a season. I played a sport, a season. Our younger brother played a sport, a season. So everybody was always on the go, Which, which we sports? always, uh, I ran track and I did volleyball and basketball. David did basketball, what else did you do, David? Cross-country
2: tennis. Oh, man. And then yes. we swam in the summer times. <laughs> and one season summer. of football. And one season of football. Yeah. One very, very brief season. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so we Hit, were him, all- Hit him, David. Hit
2: him, David. I don't think so.
1: <laughs> we were all, you know, on the go all the time. And so one thing that was always kind of constant was, um, you know, family dinners and family vacations and making sure that we always made the time for each other to spend together. Um, and I think that was really important then and is even more important now that I have my own children, making sure that I model that going forward with my own family.
0: In the midst of all those hobbies and a super busy schedule, um, you went through high school, where'd you go to college and what did you, uh, major in?
1: I went to the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Um, I was an interdisciplinary major. I majored in bioethics, uh, which is technically not a major, which is why it's interdisciplinary. So um, I wrote a thesis on health disparities, actually. It was called uh, uh, 99 Acres and a Mammogram. And I talked about different healthcare disparities and how to basically healthcare reparations. And I took a lot of uh, biology and science classes, some anthropology, and then philosophy kind of classes. It was it was my way of making a really fun major that I wanted to do all the parts of you know, biology, there were a lot of cool classes and then there were some classes I didn't really want to take. And then there were chemistry, there's some cool classes and then classes I didn't want to take. And so this way I could sort of meld all the things that I was really interested in. And I took like history of the civil rights movement. I took a shamanism and healing class and, you know, all of those different things really helped kind of diversify the view of medicine because you had to see it from different cultures and different aspects. So all of those things together. And uh, that was my major. And then I went from there to VCU for medical school. Okay. Uh, I did my residency in ophthalmology also at VCU. And then I moved to Houston and I did my two-year surgical retina fellowship at retina and vitreous of Texas in Houston. After Houston, I was in private practice for two years. And then I came back to VCU in academics and I'm now assistant professor at VCU.
0: Fantastic. Now, you can't just drop the name of this uh, thesis without digging a little deeper. So, 99 acres <laughs> and a mammogram. What, yeah. what was that about?
1: Or, a, no, it's 40. What's the saying? 40 acres and a mule, 40 acres and a mammogram. That's what it was. It's been a long acres. time since I thought about this. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have it somewhere. <laughs> Might be your house, Pops.
2: <laughs> it, it, it is. It's in my study.
1: There you
2: go. <laughs> yeah. All right.
1: It's, it's 99 pages long and the title was 40 Acres in a Mammogram.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha.
0: That's, yes, that that's is fascinating. That's a good story. Last but not least, uh, Dr. David Randolph II, who was also a radiation oncologist. So what was it like growing up in a family of doctors, uh, obviously brilliant older sister, everybody's an athlete. How was your uh, childhood and, and
2: your pathway to medicine? I'd like to add real quickly. All of the all three kids played Division one sports. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. David played basketball. Jessica ran track, and uh, the youngest played football. Yeah, I,
3: I. I mean, even on this podcast, I'm just oh, we're five minutes in, and I'm still kind of amazed at our family. Sometimes I know that sounds kind of <laughs> egotistical, but um, it's just uh, I, I. we were I. I just think that. Uh, there's just some remarkable stories and I'm just very proud of my family as well. Um, and fun fact in our family, there are five doctors Randolph. And so my mom is a dentist and my wife is a pharmacist. And so she's farm And so there's, if you call up to our house at Thanksgiving and ask for Dr. Randolph, you're going to have to Uh-oh. be very specific. Yeah. Uh, so I think the, the, the coolest thing that I, I didn't really appreciate until being older, I think is just that, my my parents had a habit of surrounding us with black excellence, and so all of our family friends are like one of our close couple friends. The the dad is an orthopedic surgeon. The mom is an ophthalmologist. We have another friend from the Radford area, and he was an ophthalmologist. Um, you know, another close friend is a, a PM&R doc. And so, growing up, honestly, the the cool thing is that it became the norm. It's just that um, seeing very high achieving black excellence is just kind of what you are accustomed to and essentially what's expected. And so, uh, I personally never felt any pressure of at any point. And my parents were very clear about this. They, they always told me, you know, do whatever you want to do. If you want to be a janitor, just be the best damn janitor that, you know, that is there. And so I always appreciated the fact that I had that, that I had options and they just wanted me to whatever I did, put my heart into it and try my best. And so, It was, it was a wonderful environment growing up as a child um, in medicine, even just, you know, we grew up in a relatively small town. I mean, not like my dad's small town, small town, but Roanoke, Virginia is not a very big town. And so um, we would go out to eat and at any given point we would interact with patients from either my mom or my dad. And just to see the patients interact with them and to have that, and to see that level of admiration and to be able, it was almost palpable, the difference that both of them were able to make in their patients' lives. Um, and so it was always, that was always something that, that I wanted, not in a, in a selfish way, but just be, to be able to impact another's life in such a meaningful way. And i to this day, I don't think there's anything more meaningful than anybody can do besides restoring your health. And so if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. And so um, that is where my desire to get into the medical field arose is, is, is seeing that interaction with my parents uh, and family friends, even for that matter, at a very young age. And jumping ahead, I do think that that's one of the keys to helping with the healthcare disparities is to make that more of a norm if It's just very hard for that uh, to get that exposure to young kids, especially young kids of color that, you know, you don't have to just go to the NBA or rap. Yes, you can be a successful physician. And um, that's why we all try to go out into the community and and speak and and help as much as we can and get that exposure at a young age.
0: Yeah. uh, Over the year and a half, I've been doing this podcast. I was like, I need a a catchphrase or or a buzzword because that's what everybody has. And then um, it didn't really come to me till about a year in, and I started realizing that the one thing this provides is representation. So representation matters. Obviously okay. not the first person to say that, but clearly, you know, representation had a huge impact in your lives. And hopefully this uh, podcast can continue to further the reach of, of that representation. Absolutely.
3: The one difference that I'll say, is just that, you know, my sister said it was cool going to my dad's office. You know, I was a little bit younger and I thought it was the most boring thing ever. Uh, <laughs> just because when you're, you know, eight years old, you can't really appreciate radiation oncology. I mean, most adults don't even appreciate radiation oncology, but that's what got me started into Marvel comics. And so I'm not a new age Marvel fan. I was reading the comics and I still have my comics from the nineties and, and even just, we still have our X-Men cards. So I would go to his office, and I thought it was cool because I got to read my X-Men comic books, um, just for the record.
2: <laughs> David, you should tell them about your volunteer work with uh, Big Brothers. Uh, I mean, sure. <laughs> I think that's very important. Yeah. I, I just think that's, I think it's a great way. I think it's a yeah. great way to help. Yeah. People. Well,
3: you know, our family was raised with, with a strong altruistic background. At Thanksgiving, we would go to the food shelters and um, you know give out Thanksgiving dinners, and it's just something that's always been a part of our lives. And so even, I mean, from the moment I went into college, I started volunteering at a local organization called CHAT, um, which is basically, honestly, an after-school science and math program for especially people in the inner city area, uh, really the inner city projects of Richmond. So I volunteered with that throughout college and med school and um, went away for residency and then came back to Richmond and um, it turned out that just with the hours I worked, I couldn't volunteer at that was chat, um, Churchill Activities and Tutoring Program anymore. And so I looked for another outlet, and I ended up joining Big Brothers Big Sister, and I have my little brother, Marquis, who's the man. And um, it's just awesome because I get to you know, interact with him on a daily basis, and it him some early exposure into medicine and try to put some plugs in his ears about you know medicine and other STEM careers. Uh, And even I get to uh, the opportunity to put him in little science and math programs in the summertime to get him that early exposure. And so it's been uh, a very enriching experience for, I think, both of hopefully both of us, especially me.
0: Yeah. So, so important. Can't understate um, how big of an impact we can all have and those that are kind of falling behind us. So. So, David, where did you go to undergrad, uh, medical school and residency? Yeah. So uh,
3: undergrad, I did University of Richmond. I got an academic scholarship there and walked onto the basketball team for a couple of years. Um, then I went to VCU for medical school. uh did my intern year because radiation oncology is one plus four. So one year of internal medicine or surgery. And then I did my four years of radiation oncology at Wake Forest. And then as fast as I could make it back here, I came back and begged my dad for a job. So here I am. <laughs>
2: He, he didn't have to beg. We, we <laughs> recruited. We recruited him hard. Yeah, he, he of, of all the people we saw, he was by and large the, the best pick we could have had. Yeah.
0: The office isn't so boring anymore. No,
2: no, definitely, definitely not. No, I went into <laughs> medical school thinking I was
3: going to be an orthopedic surgeon. I will tell you that, but. I, operating room is not for me, and I found my way back to to radiation oncology.
1: I'm the opposite. I went in thinking I was going to do radiation oncology, and the operating room is where I should be. <laughs> so I switched to ophthalmology
0: <laughs> oh man so so Dr. Randolph uh senior, you started what what year did you start practicing radiation oncology, and kind of how have you seen the field progress from then till now?
2: So I started practicing in 1989, uh, and uh, when I finished my radiation oncology residency, I think there was—and and I may be exaggerating, but I don't think so. But I think in the country, there may have been like ten black radiation oncologists. There were just very few, uh, and like I say, that may be an over over exaggeration. But I don't think it it's is. It's not far. It's not yeah. far from the truth. And then so now it's, you know, I am beginning to see with people who are, you know, calling, looking for jobs and just talking to my friends that there are uh, there are many more uh, practicing black radiation oncologists. Now, so that's one thing. Uh, the, the field uh, itself, of course, has just tra- changed dramatically. If you would have told me while I was in residency that I could do the things I can now with imrt and high dose rate brachytherapy and some of the procedures we do i i, I could not have believed it it, it uh, i wouldn't wouldn't have believed it it's it, the field has really changed in over the years
0: yeah so um david and jessica we're not going to leave you out of this we got to dig into this radiation ecology practice a little bit so david can you explain kind of what you and your dad do day in and day out to treat yeah. patients
3: yeah, so, so radiation oncology is, I mean, honestly, exactly what it sounds like. So we actually use uh, high-powered focused radiation or x-rays, typically x-rays, to actually treat cancer. Um, there are some benign uh, or non-cancerous disease processes that we do treat as well, uh, but that's essentially what it is. And so whether it, we're using our what we call our gamma knife, which is uh, using gamma radiation, Um, with a special uh, machine that is designed to treat with over 192 little beamlets of pinpoint radiation less than a millimeter to treat something like a motion disorder, or if we are doing actual um, radiation to treat a brain tumor that's in an inoperable location because it's along the motor strip, we can actually kill cancer cells with pinpoint precision. And the benefit is because we're not actually operating, we are able to spare the normal tissue that is surrounding And so, we're able to kill cancer cells while sparing the surrounding tissue. So, another big application of this is with lung cancer, for example. And so, before, if you had lung cancer, if it was operable, you got surgery, that was your only option. And now, we have something that's called stereotactic body radiotherapy, or SBRT, in which we're doing five high-powered radiation treatments to a tumor in somebody's lung based on what we call 4D imaging which is literally we make a movie of how the tumor moves while someone's breathing, and we're able to track the tumor that entire way and deliver pinpoint-precise radiation and kill the cancer with greater than 95% uh, efficacy. And so it's a it's a, it's a pretty—I mean, I think it's—I mean, I'm biased. I think it's the coolest field in the world, <laughs> second only to retina surgery, of course. Um, but it's— uh, <laughs> But, I mean, it's just remarkable the things that we do. It truly is.
0: How does the... You tell me that this gamma knife or these radiation beams will go through the skin and attack just the tumor cell? Like, what about everything in between the skin, the bone?
3: Yeah. And so that's what we do our planning for. And so the the short answer is we use uh, a bunch of very low-dose radiation beams. And where those beams meet, there is... So if you use, for example... Two beams, where they meet in the middle, the beam will be twice as strong. Three beams, the beam will be three Mm -hmm. times as strong, et cetera. Mm. And so when you use like 192 little beamlets, um, where the beams are entering, you get one 192nd of the strength. But where they all meet, it's a high-dose area. And so we're able to pinpoint that high-dose area right on the tumor. And that's where we're able to get such effective treatments from while sparing the surrounding tissue. The surrounding tissue gets low doses of radiation, uh, but it is uh, essentially a negligible amount.
0: I have wondered that probably since medical school, and I always felt it was a dumb question, so I never asked it. But thank you for explaining that. That (laughs) is brilliant. Thank
3: you. (laughs) I wish I came up with it.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. So, Dr. Jessica Randolph, let's talk about eyes. Um, you did not go down the radiation oncology path. You were enthralled with the field of ophthalmology. What pulled you into that specialty? Uh, the
1: short version is surgery. Um, our surgeries are really cool. Everything is under a microscope. I am operating on things that are microns in diameter, like half the diameter of a red blood cell and the, the surgeries, like there's always something new and exciting coming out. So I love the surgeries um that was a big part of it and in general ophthalmology people are very focused on keeping their vision or getting their vision back and so again like the helping people and being of service it's it's something that's like a high quality of life item you know restoring someone's sight and being able to help people in that way so you know the retina is the the wallpaper on the back of the eye it's where the rods and cones are, if you remember that from science <laughs> class way back. And uh, so common things that I treat are diabetic, diabetic patients with you know, very high sugars can have retinal detachments and proliferative diabetic retinopathy where these abnormal blood vessels grow on the surface of the retina and they can bleed in the eye or cause a type of glaucoma where the pressure goes really high and then they go blind or retinal detachments where the scar tissue sort of shrinks and pulls up on the retina. And so my job is to prevent and or fix that depending on how bad they are when they first present. Other patients can get retinal detachments uh, just from trauma or age-related changes. Uh, I see a lot of people with macular degeneration or other eye problems from things like diabetes and high blood pressure. Some people think that ophthalmology is gross or weird, but it's it's really cool. Once you know what you're looking at and can understand it, it's a very visual field and I'm a visual person. So being able to see what it is based on my physical exam and say, this is what you have. And then this is how I'm going to fix it. Uh, I really like that aspect of things. I don't like, uh, Gray zones and many hour long rounds debating the like pros and cons of their acid balance. Like, I that's not my thing, and so I like looking in saying, This is what's wrong with you. I'm gonna fix it. We're gonna do surgery next week or tomorrow or whatever it is.
0: So, you gotta explain to me, how do you do surgery on something half a diameter of a red blood cell? Microscope very carefully, very carefully,
1: (laughs) 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 under a microscope. And yeah, very carefully. I
3: mean, and, and just for a plug for Jess, you know, even when she was a little kid to this day, she has always been able to, she can spot like a 4 leaf clover from a mile away. I mean, she has always just had that extreme attention to detail. And so, uh, I think she's perfectly suited for it. And it's no question why she's you know, voted one of the top docs in Richmond every year. Uh, oh, congratulations. Fun fact, we, we often get into little playful debates because I'm like, Oh, Jess, you know, it's no big deal. I'm just curing cancer. You know, what did you do today? And then she'd be like, well, You're you blinded. know, yeah, well, she's like, well, you know, there's studies that show that people would rather be dead than be blind. And I'm like, all right, touche, touche.
2: So touché. we have our little, little, f- friendly Data, Data's on
1: my side. So that's the
2: psyche. only side effect that's not acceptable <laughs> in radiation oncology. Blindness yeah. is the is the, 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 it's not a, an acceptable side effect. We won't. I treat do it.
1: treat radiation retinopathy. Mm. <laughs> really? We have occasionally shared patients.
0: No way. Yes.
1: A couple eye tumors that I diagnose and send their way or vice versa, and mm-hmm.
0: and so you say you you will not treat that if it's going to cause blindness.
2: Yes, there is. That's 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 the one. That's the one unacceptable side effect in radiation oncology. Yep.
1: Wow. The eye can only tolerate so much radiation, and so all of their plans exclude the eye.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, I learn new stuff every time. Just being able to sit <laughs> and speak with such interesting folks and and specialists. Now, now, talk a little bit, Jessica, about your ophthalmology residency. You know, what are some of the things that you experienced and some of the rotations you went on.
1: So ophthalmology residency is a intern year, uh, either, you know, general medicine or, uh, general surgery or the, uh, combined year and then three years of ophthalmology residency. Um, ophthalmology is an early match, which makes it, um, a little tricky sometimes to match into, and it's one of the more competitive specialties. So, you know, going back to getting more underrepresented people in the field, if you don't know about something and you're not exposed to it, and then you find out that match day is next week for it, then, you know, you're kind of late to the ball game and you either have to pivot and pick something else or, you know, rethink your life plans essentially. Um, so, uh, you know, I was lucky with the, you know, the, the network that I have when I realized that radiation oncology wasn't for me. Um, one of the mentors that I had said, oh, I know these people in Philadelphia, the Shields that do ocular oncology. And so they treat tumors of the eye. You know, you should go and shadow them or do a month with them. So I did a month up there and did a lot of research. And I was like, okay, yeah, this is legit. This is really cool. And I shadowed the family friend that was an ophthalmologist that we had and, you know, got some exposure to make sure that I really liked it. And then the race was on for matching because I decided late in my third year. And so I did some away rotations and all that and, uh, ended up, you know, matching at VCU, which I was very happy about. And so I did an internal medicine intern year and I did all the ICU rotations and all that kind of stuff, uh, before going into just ophthalmology, ophthalmology residency is like a, drinking from a fire hydrant of information (laughs) because it's so limited what you learned in medical school. And now you are responsible for knowing everything basically when you start. So there's a lot of uh, a learning curve. It is a like straight vertical learning curve, but all of that learning ties back into everything else that we've learned in medical school and an in intern year. Um, some people think that ophthalmology, you just like dismiss everything that you learned before and why you even go to medical school, but that's not true. And a lot of what we do is an overlap. And I ophthalmology um, overlaps with almost every, if not every single field in medicine. And, you know, I'm consistently sharing my notes with rheumatologists and kidney doctors and geneticists and all sorts of things to, you know, to help patients. Um, So even though I'm not doing some of the same things that I was doing before, like ordering labs and chest x-rays, I still do some of that for, you know, people with inflammation in the eyes and um, you know, different things like that. Like I've diagnosed people with genetic kidney diseases based on their eye exams. I've diagnosed a lot of people with diabetes from their eye exams. I had one like last week that, I'm like, have you ever had your sugar checked? No, (laughs) you should, um, you know, diagnosing tumors, metastatic tumors, since we're, you know, on this cancer theme today as well. Um, you know, all of that can show up in the eye inflammatory conditions like sarcoidosis and rheumatoid arthritis can show in the eye. So there's, you know, it, it, there's a lot going on in that little, little space. Um, and it's all still very relevant to general medicine.
0: Um, As an anesthesiologist, I do work occasionally with ophthalmologists, rarely with radiation oncologists because of my current practice, but um, I'm fortunate to kind of work with both specialties. I recently did anesthesia for a corneal transplant, which I hadn't seen one of those before. It was pretty cool, but they were talking. And is it true that you have to do a vision test as part of the match process for ophthalmology? Um,
1: Some programs require a basic eye exam. Yeah,
0: okay.
1: because there are y- certain things that would make it really hard to be an ophthalmologist. You if you don't have good vision in one eye, then your depth perception is limited. And when you're operating on something half the size of a blood cell under a microscope, you kind of need depth perception. So, yes, yes and no. It's not yeah, a but, strict rule, but some places
0: do. But poor vision, poor vision is OK. You just... I
1: mean, if it's correctable with glasses or contacts.
0: OK, you're still there's still a chance. No, okay.
1: you, have to, you have to be able to, one of the things we say in surgery all the time, you have to be able to see it to fix it.
0: <laughs> so. That's a good rule, good, good rule of thumb to have. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, such an incredible specialty. You know, we've, we've kind of mentioned it before. One of the reasons that we're here and talking about uh, our respective careers is that there is uh, healthcare disparities that are rampant across our country. So Dr. Randolph Sr., can you kind of talk about Healthcare disparities that you've seen throughout your career, and and together, you know, what can we do to help solve
2: these issues? Well, I, I uh, <clears throat> well, first of all, when I when I went to medical school, uh, there was one African American female, and there was probably about four other African American males in my class, and we, you know, we all went through. <clears throat> Then you know. Fast forward to when my son graduated medical school, there was him and another guy. And then the year after him, I don't think there were any African American males uh, in his class. Right? Dad? There, there. I. The year after. There, you,
3: I think the year after you graduated, there were. There, there may. I don't think there was any. But then the year after that, there was about four. I think.
2: Yes, the, the number of, uh, just from what I've seen, and my, my children will probably be able to comment more on this, but the, the number of, of African-American students going into medicine seems to be falling off significantly, and uh, and I'm not so sure why that is. I know there's, there's an issue with mentoring, uh, you know, you don't, uh, there's, I I don't think there's enough mentors in college that are mentoring our children to go into medicine.
0: Yeah, and and David and Jessica, what have you guys experienced and seen along the way?
1: So for me, you can look at this in two different ways and one is the disparity among the health professionals itself and the number of, you know, black and underrepresented minority students entering medical school and matriculating and Um, you know, taking residencies and all that kind of stuff. And then also the health disparities regarding our patients. And so on the, um, on the healthcare doctor end of things, you know, it is harder, the old adage, you have to work twice as hard, you know, and be the first one there and the last one to leave. All that stuff is still very true. Um, There are still, I have a group of medical students of each year of medical school that, um, I'm this like coaching role for them. And I still hear about issues where they get marked, you know, marked down on their feedback and stuff like that. And they're like, this seems really, you know, not right. And I think it's because of racially related things and not because of my actual work. Um, so all of that does still happen. I do agree that mentoring is very important. Um, at all levels. And like David mentioned, exposure is very important. I saw the um, Black Men and White Coats documentary not that long ago. And one thing that really stuck with me was they said, uh, you can't be what you can't see. And so, you know, all of these young people and school-age students that have never seen a Black doctor and didn't know that we could do that and, mm-hmm. you know, or ha- can't, haven't seen black lawyers and accountants and, you know, whatever else, and don't even know that that is an option. And so I think exposure is very, very important and things like David is doing with the big brothers, big sisters and showing up for things like health fairs and, you know, kind of basic community outreach things so that those students can see people who look like them. And then on the patient-centered side of things, you know, even research studies are biased against underrepresented and historically excluded people. Um, In retina especially, we do a lot of diabetes work, and so the A1C cutoffs are often too high and exclude a good number of our Black patients. And so the data that we're looking at that's telling us which medications to use and how frequently to use them and inject them in people's eyes is all based on a data set that's not reflective of my patient population. Mm. Um, So there are now in the wake of the George, George Floyd racial, whatever you want to call it in America, there people are starting to be more vocal about addressing these things. Um, and I've been on some kind of papers and boards and things like that, trying to move the needle in that direction. So I think some of that is happening. Um, I've heard of like in dermatology, there's a movement now to talk about things on skin of color, which has like never been done before. And there was a <laughs> viral, overdue. yeah, there was a, a viral like medical illustration of a pregnant black woman with a black fetus in it, which like has never been seen before because all the medical illustrations are white skin. And then in medical schools and teaching universities, how are we teaching our students? How are we showing them like, what is the appropriate way to talk to certain people or to assess for socioeconomic factors? And, you know, we, we say, some dumb things like patient was non-compliant with their medication, but why were they non-compliant? Yeah. Because it's too burdensome to take an eye drop eight times a day when you have, you know, children and a full-time job and you're a single mom or whatever. You know, what what's the real issue? Because most of the time, it's not the patient's choice to just neglect their health. There's got to be something else, and so, um, you know, really getting to the root of the problem for patients, and part of that is having black faculty represented in schools black faculty tends not to go into academics. They tend to not stay in academics. The support isn't there. The mentoring of black faculty isn't there. And so a lot of times people leave academics in general, and then it further contributes to the disparity between students and educators. There's a lot, there's a lot of reasons.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> a lot of things to fix.
3: <laughs> yeah. And, and, piggybacking off of that, uh, I mean, not to belabor any of these points, but I do think, um, I truly feel that early exposure is the key, and I know that even at the college level, uh, Jess and I are fortunate to live in Richmond, where there's you know University of Richmond, VCU, and even UVA is not too far away. And so, there have been multiple panels that I said, "Hey, Jess, you know, come join me on this panel. We're going to be talking to undergrad students about how to get into medical school and vice versa." And fortunately, I have a still a very strong pipeline with University of Richmond. And so uh, at any given point, at least in pre-pandemic times, I had anywhere between about three to seven students shadowing me, uh, you know, at my job and getting them. At, and I, I am—I have no problem saying I specifically target students of color that are interested in medicine um, to make sure that they get that exposure because, uh, you know, there's there's just a lot of barriers that are in place. And that's what I wish that more people had understanding about uh, just an empathy for the different challenges that surround people of color. Uh, Jess was alluding to this um, as far as you know what's the issue with why the patient is non compliant and mm-hmm. you know one of the reasons why I'm so quick to to give back is I feel like it's my duty. you know my parents busted their asses to put me in a position where. Um, when I was in medical school, I didn't have to worry about getting a second job or getting a job so I could focus all of my time and dedicate it to studying. And unfortunately, especially for a large part of the people of color, that's not a reality for them, whether it be undergrad or sometimes even high school. And so they can't dedicate the time that they need to focus on studies because of the other environmental factors that, that are in play and so, um, you know, I wish I had a better solution. I, I do think that there are slowly some changes that are occurring. I just saw today about the SAT is going digital and they are shortening mm-hmm. in, uh, the length because, you know, the, the SAT is really just, you know, I don't need to lecture anybody on this, but it's really just a matter of, you know, if you can, you know, buy a fancy tutor or if you once again can afford to just sit down and study for the SAT. And so it's, it's really a, a measure of privilege. More so than aptitude, and so I think um, things like that, and even in a lot of ways, like the MCAT. Um, you know, I'm very anti-standardized test. Part of that, I'm biased. I'm not very good at standardized tests, even <laughs> though I tried to study very hard for them. Same. Uh, even like your your step one board exam in in medical school, they're going they're changing that to pass fail, and I think that that has the potential to open up a lot of doors to people that you know might otherwise not have the board scores they need to go into ophthalmology. Um, on their step one when before that is that big hurdle, which once again, there's just a lot of factors that play into that. It's not just a, a metric of your intelligence. And so uh, early exposure, and I think uh, especially in schools of color, um, getting them exposed to STEM programs at a young age um, is is going to be a key to uh, uh, to helping improve things as well.
1: Yeah. David, I don't know if you knew this, but a lot of the research on step USMLA step ones and how different like racial and diverse backgrounds have different average scores was in radiation oncology actually. Uh, um, I believe it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And so that's, you know, ophthalmology, we're sort of faced with a, an interesting position because we're early match. And so step one was kind of all we had numbers wise to go off of, but now that stuff was going past fail, you know, it's, definitely a win in terms of equality and (laughs) diversity, but it makes our jobs a little bit harder on the application committee, trying to figure out who then to bring for interview and how to stratify people.
3: Just another, uh, uh, I, I view it as a challenge. I get that there's changes, but, it it seems like there's kind of a war on affirmative action, um, in a traditional sense. Cause you know, when I went to university of Richmond, I was a merit scholarship for it. I mean, it was strict. It was a black scholarship kind of period. And now that scholarship has adapted to, to change the definition to, to be more inclusive. And so when I go back and see my old scholarship, um, it's, you know, it's, it's people from all walks of life and there's a lot of different, um, There's a lot of different um, forms of diversity. Yeah, yeah, forms of diversity. It's it's not just a matter of skin color, but I definitely think that being a person of color, an underrepresented person of color in the United States, is a unique experience all its own. And you know, I'm not trying to go down this because I know that my dad can, you know, have stories for days. But even I remember I was my chief. I was chief resident in radiation oncology. It was a long day. I was studying for boards and I was leaned back in my chair and I was, I uh, just kind of had my head back because I was in between practice tests and my attending, my white attending comes in the room, sees me leaned back in my chair and he says, I bet you drive your car like that too. And then walked out and I was just mm-hmm. like, bro, what the hell, man? Like into and, and his Testament, like he did come back and apologize, but it's, I, you know, I also went to school in the South. I went to school in, in North Carolina but it's once again, I'm, I'm not going to trade stories with my dad because he he'll tell you some stuff <laughs> that'll just make your blood boil. But uh, but it's just still it's like, bro, it's 2016. Like, why why did you feel the need? Like, where did that come from? And so, I think that a big part of moving forward, especially in healthcare, is there have been studies looking at the inherent bias against people of color, and that people are not aware of it. And uh, like Jess was saying, outcomes are always worse. And People of color, but especially is true in cancer. Uh, per capita, you know survival is is three times lower on average than white counterparts for the same stage disease with cancer. And you know why once again, why is that as, as Jess alluded to. And so we've got a long way to go. And unfortunately, I don't feel like this the racial climate in America right now is is um, the moral arc is bending towards justice right now.'ll just put it that way, but um, you know we'll we'll see what happens in the future, not to be a cynic.
0: oh man so much to unpack but again this is the purpose of this podcast to just start having these conversations start having the representation thank you all so much for the work you're doing reaching back and helping others to to come up along the way and, and doing all you can to increase that diversity in uh in medicine dr randolph uh md jd uh, I was a senior.
2: <laughs> senior. <laughs> um,
0: thank you so much for the incredible job that you've done um, and the impact that you've had on increasing diversity in healthcare. A fantastic family that you've raised and are continuing to give back. If you want to know more about this incredible family, they were featured on a story on Inside Edition, where it really digs deep into their background and some of the, the practice and the work they're doing for the community. So Dr. Doc, Randolph thank you all So much for coming on the Black Doctors Podcast because representation matters
2: Thank you uh, So much for having us
0: yeah, And, and yeah. definitely we'll love to have you Back anytime um, We just barely scratched the surface because we've got A lot more to talk about With eyes and radiation Oncology so so more than uh, We'll definitely have to get you back on the show Absolutely anytime. Thank you so anytime. much for having, having us today to. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit, volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. If you enjoy listening, tell a friend about the show or share a link on social media. We are a small team and can use all the help you can get. You can reach us at The Black Doctors Podcast on Instagram or at Stephen Bradley MD on Twitter or Instagram. Tune in next week for another episode of The
2: Black Doctors Podcast because representation matters.